We're back in the wasteland, and this time we'll need to survive a society of children, the dreaded Master Blaster, and the deadly wardrobe of Tina Turner. Rev your engines once again as we discuss Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Welcome everyone to the Atomic Cinema Experiment. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. I come in peace. This is a science fiction movie podcast. We talk about a sci-fi movie. It's that simple. There's really not much more to it. Uh, We have been working through the Mad Max franchise gradually over the first few months of the year because there's Hmm. a new one coming out. Furiosa is coming early summer. So we're here today to talk about Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome, which was the only one of the franchise that I hadn't seen before, so... Oh, okay. Very curious to get into this one. Uh, Whereas for you, you hadn't seen any of them. Nope, I am a Mad Max virgin. Never seen any of them. Now that you've seen three out of four, or technically five, including the new one, Mm -hmm. um, is is that like your mid? your first time it's like you're halfway through losing the virginity no you you lose your virginity after the first mad max now i'm just slowly moving into like kinkier stuff now i'm like (laughs) looking at the leather bound men in the desert i'm like all right i get it okay i see what's going on all right so we'll start spoiler free of course as we always do we'll talk about this uh tina turner (laughs) edition (laughs) of mad max uh, I'll just say, before we get started, I'll remind you, if you are enjoying the show, do please hit the like button. It helps out a bunch if you do. More people will find us. And if you want to support us above and beyond, you can go over to patreon.com slash TV. And me and David do a couple of bonus monthly shows that you might enjoy. There's bonuses for other things. I'll tell you more about all that at the end of the show. But for now, we'll get into just our general feelings on Mad Max 3, which... Mm-hmm is a little different from the first two. It's got a bigger budget. It's a little bit more Hollywood. We'll talk about what that means as, as we give our thoughts. Yeah, It's obviously got Tina Turner, as I alluded to, which is the one thing I knew about this movie. I knew about the Thunderdome, and I knew about Tina Turner, and that was really it. I didn't really... Actually, I didn't think I knew anything else, but there was some one thing that showed up that I went, you know what, I've heard of this, and I just oh, okay. didn't realize it was from this, or maybe I did know that and forgot, but we'll get into all that. See- for me, I didn't know about Tina Turner until maybe, you know, like two hours before I watched it. And that's simply because I was looking for it and Tina Turner's just there on the poster. Um, but what I knew well before going into this was that it was the one with the kids. And that's, I, I don't know what mm, that meant. I just knew that there were kids. I did not know that. So, okay. And so that, when that comes into the movie about halfway through, it was like, mm. oh, this is a turn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this this one's a little bit more stationary in a way than uh, the last one. Well, I mean, the last one had like a main sort of base, I suppose, that they were sort of revolving around. But this this yeah. one, it's got a big sort of town that's been set up called Barter Town, uh, in which Tina Turner's character kind of rules over. And there's the Thunderdome, the titular Thunderdome, and mm-hmm. all that. So uh, basically, Max enters the town at the start of the movie because he's looking for something that was taken from him. And then the plot unfolds from there. I won't get into any more of it yet. We'll save all that for spoilers. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, David, what did you think Mm. of Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome? I I don't mean this in as negative as it's going to (laughs) sound. Okay. But I get why this was the last Mad Max for a while. 
if that makes sense. Because the first two, like the the first one felt like this strange thing based off of what you think of Mad Max. The second one felt very much locked in. Like this is definitively what I think of when I think of Mad Max is Road Warrior. This one, it felt like it almost got a bit too much in a totally different direction. It felt like, yes, we've got the wasteland. Yes, we've got all this like apocalyptic stuff, but it felt like it was less about the like violence of the wasteland and more about like, well, let's focus on Max and how like he, how he is as a character, I guess. But it does come at the loss of a lot of the cooler set pieces that I was kind of expecting across the movie. Um, The storyline's fine. I think that it gets a little bit ADD at times and it just kind of bounces around for the first two acts where I'm not sure where it's actually going at any point. Though I will say this movie does the best because of that ADD of the moral gray area. The first, the previous two movies had a very clear, you've got Max and whoever he sided with on the good side, and then there's the bad guys. This one, it just keeps bouncing back and forth of, well, everyone has a point as to what they're doing is the right thing to do, and whether or not morally they can justify why they should continue to keep living that way. So that was at least interesting the whole way through. But yeah, no, it definitely feels like it's off the track of what I consider to be Mad Max, despite the fact that it is literally a third of it. Yeah, you said there was no Mad Max movies for a while. To be precise, 30 years is the exact amount of time before Mad yeah. Max for Your Road came out. Because uh, yeah. this came out in 1985. So, I mean, I... Yeah, I was getting into this with weird expectations. I, I think I didn't watch it back when I saw the first two for the first time. I think I just never got around to this one because I'd heard it was the weak one. And going into it now, I was like, okay, I was curious. I was I was genuinely very excited to see what it was. You know, whether it was great, good, mediocre, bad, whatever it ended up being or however I, how I ended up feeling about it. I was just... I wanted to watch it to actually see what it is and cross it off the list and just know for myself because I I just kind of dodged it for so long. And what's funny about it is that the word Thunderdome has actually entered into the lexicon of meaning something Mm kind of specific and it still gets used. Wrestling especially happily throws that word around sometimes and there's matches that are based on the idea of what the Thunderdome is. Like, it's very much something that is... In the same way that the Road Warrior established a lot of what the Wasteland is, there's still Mm -hmm. things from this one that are still entered into... uh, Just, again, furthered that idea. Like, Barter Town is very much almost the prototype for the hub world in any of your Fallout video games or anything like that, where you've got the Mm -hmm. Wasteland and you've got the... The, the characters who are making it work and they've built up some kind of economy system and there's some something going on. There's a, sort of a civilization yeah. growing once again. It, it feels like, you know, back before democracies and stuff like that, it felt like the warlord has the little town here and yeah. everything just kind of functions because they need this town to function in order for society as a whole to work. And it does feel like Max, when he comes to this town at the start of the movie, it feels like a much bigger place than anything we saw in the last movie. But given that he's got the the long hair now, it's like, okay, clearly time has passed. It's been a little while. Things yep. have changed. And, you know, we get into all that. But anyway, as for my my thoughts on the movie, um, like, I kind of was really into big chunks of it, but there was other chunks where I was less enthusiastic about it. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it caught me off guard right away because as soon as the movie starts, right, you get the Warner Brothers logo and then the opening titles play out and it's just plain white text on a black background. So it feels quite low key for what it is. But Meanwhile, Tina Turner's just wailing in the background. Well, that, that was the thing is the song really stuck out is feeling very different tonally to anything in the first two movies mm. and the music kind of kept that going through even when it wasn't a song that was being you know like a, a tina turner song like there was saxophone in the soundtrack there was all sorts of things popping up in the score that felt a lot more adventury in a way that mad max one and two didn't have mm-hmm. and i think that that feeling of it being a bit hollywood i would because there's nothing wrong with that, like with a movie like a Star Wars or Indiana Jones, but it definitely felt like this one was aiming at that audience where they wanted to take Mad Max and sort of aim it a little bit lower in the ages so that it could mm-hmm. appeal to families and kids could enjoy it and all that stuff. And I think, you know, because the last movie, like it clearly showed people being raped and things like that. You know, it was yeah. a much darker story, a much darker world it was inhabited. Whereas this, there's a sense of a lighthearted tone a lot of the time. There's hijinks at points. The score's kind of playful. And I'm not Mm. saying... I don't really necessarily like that change, but you can definitely feel that change from the previous one. Um, Where it was working for me, though, is I actually think the first half hour or so is really solid. Um, I I like the introduction to the the barter world, or the barter town, I should say, and the Thunderdome and the the, the plot set up. Um, We'll get into what this means later, but Master Blaster, I actually think, is a really (laughs) fun thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think the last, like, half hour, which is, like... Because w- this is the thing. All movie, I was like, is there seriously going to be no vehicles in this? Because that's Mad Max, baby. And there's been yeah. not a single vehicle. Like, oh, okay, there's a brief one, the opening couple of shots. But there's been no scenes with Max in a vehicle, right? Or, there's no set pieces with Yeah, there's right. been no races, there's been no chases, nothing. But mm. they just save it all for the third act, right? Because you eventually get to the point where, okay, they're getting into vehicles, and you're like, okay, we've been waiting for this... This is what Mad Max kind of is. At its, this is the mm. bread and butter. Not to say that having the town in the wasteland where they're bartering and they've got their own new kind of savage form of like laws and justice and all that shit, mm-hmm. that still feels very post-apocalyptic. It still feels like it belongs. But when you think of the heart of what Mad Max and what makes a Mad Max movie, it's the vehicles. It's the getting into the vehicle combat. And yeah. all of them have had some level of that uh, throughout. That's that's I agree with you in that I was super into the first like half hour because it felt to me like, okay, this is just an expansion on the Mad Max world. He comes across this town that is a collection of people from all over, but they have to abide by these rules that are laid down by Tina Turner. And I (laughs) well, she's simply the best, David. She is Um, better than all the rest, you might say. I do disagree (laughs) with the back half because while it is a decent enough set piece for the movie that it like as it was presented sure pales in comparison to every other set piece that like any mad max has movie has shown beforehand it feels like there wasn't enough focus given to what like i said what i consider to be mad max it felt like it was all kind of spent in delivering this story of i mean i don't want to spoil it too much but max basically exploring who he is as a character because that's something we said during road warrior he barely gets any sort of like lines he barely talks at all meanwhile in this movie he never shuts up 
he continuously talks the entire way through. So I think that by the end of the movie, it well, didn't quite capture I, me as well as the other ones. I think that's only in comparison to the last movie. I'd still say compared to a normal protagonist, he still oh, yeah. he still spends a lot of time being quiet. I, like, I think you're overselling yeah. that a little bit. but I, I have to oversell it a little bit just to counteract the... <laughs> the positive a bit i i I mean what is this if not just a little bit of over the top throughout i don't know because even even when i was enjoying the first half hour or so there was i could still notice like that more like traditional hollywood score creeping in Mm -hmm. and that that's just the little flourishes that were making it feel more like a hollywood movie and less whatever it was before right you know know, it's indie like we can do it kind of thing that they had going with the first two um Mm. but and I do have some problems with the story. I do think the kids... Um, well, I, I like some aspects to the kids, and I like the logic of why they exist and what it means mm-hmm. for the world as a whole. The truth is that, yeah, the the kids as a group do feel a little bit like, okay, are we in like some sort of weird Peter Pan movie? All of a sudden, right. there's a little bit of that vibe going. And I do think I- it... There's a few things that it doesn't set up, or the transition story-wise, going into the third act, feels a little bit rushed and sloppy. Almost, It feels like, to me, there was some stuff that was cut out for time to get it under two hours. Right, That yeah. felt like it, things weren't connecting up neatly. Uh, for example, one big element of the set piece in that third act, which I really like because it, it separates it from the first two movies because it introduces something very different. Mm-hmm. I also didn't feel that they set it up properly where I'm like, oh, this is a thing. I th- You could have probably set this up earlier in the movie. Or if you yeah, did. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden I'm like, was there always a train track here? Because right, I, I don't exactly. feel like I noticed that. But, you know. It feels, like, it feels like the sort of things in the post-apocalypse would have been scrapped very first. It's like, oh, look, a free source of iron that goes on forever. Let's go <laughs> ahead and just take that up. Um, Quick question. Yeah. Over on your side of the world, what was this rated? Was it rated in the same ratings category as the first two movies? Uh, I'm just going to have to check that because I don't know off the top of my head. Because I'll say on our side, uh, the first two movies were rated R. This one was actually given a PG-13. So it well, that was makes sense. under the barrel. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense because it does feel toned down. Uh, this is a 15 in the UK. Now, notably okay. in the 80s, the UK BBFC's certificate board were, were very harsh. And a mm-hmm. lot of PG-13s would be 15s. These days, most PG-13s are just a 12. And it's not, there's not okay. even a, you know... And most R-rated movies are a 15. It takes it takes a lot of sex and nudity to get the 18 these days. Uh, right. But I just... I, I think back to over on Collector's Cup when we did Expendables. We specifically commented the third one, it was a PG-13. Yes, yes. You could feel the tone shift. I feel like that same sort of tone shift was here. Where the first two movies, they they knew they were going to get the R, so they didn't bother trying to tone things down, and they made it pretty gory, all things considered. Whereas this one, it does feel more like someone watched Return of the Jedi come out, and they're like, Christ, Gam, we can make a bunch more money if we just spread out the audience a little bit. Let's put some Ewoks in there. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that. Even at the start, even before you get to the kids, even before you get to the stuff that feels a bit more hijinks, the tone is already a little bit lighter. It already feels mm-hmm. like we're in a a more movie-safe version. Um, the original... Mad, uh, sorry, Mad Max 2, I was just double-checking what rating that had in the UK. It had an mm-hmm. X. I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> that's that's not used I mean, anymore, so I don't know. X, X, at least over here, means like no one's going to see this unless you're over 18, period. Yeah, that's, this is like... I think this is... I think Mad Max 2 came out before the current system was put in place, so I don't even know what that means in the old system. 
hold on you said bbfc right uh children under 16 could not see the film and it was changed to an 18 certificate in 1982 okay so i guess technically then the second one was uh, when this came out the second one was considered an 18 so it did go down a, mm. a slot yeah. uh so an X was a 16. Oh God. Yeah, that's an old system. I don't even know what any of those ratings mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, nowadays, anytime you hear X, it's just safe to assume, like, no kid is going to be able to see this period, which then you change it over to the 12s or the 15s, and it is a bit more generous with letting younger audiences in. Yeah, but I don't know what the attitude was in the UK when, when this was the oh, system. Yeah. I, I don't know if like an X had a stigma to it or if it was just, no, that's just the adult one. So you just, That's fair. You know? I mean, it was the 70s. Nobody cared about what their kids watched in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think... I don't necessarily mind it being a more, like, for everyone tone, necessarily. Although mm. I, I also wouldn't have minded it still being quite as harsh as the first two. I th- right. I, th- I think, for me, it's when it gets to the kids where it does almost feel like the Return of the Jedi when you get to the Ewoks. There's kind of a little bit of that vibe to it, and mm-hmm. I think that is more of a problem to me. Because, but I think even before you get to that point, it does feel like we're in a PG thirteen versus an R rating. But I still think it's a fun PG thirteen, and I still think the like the set design and oh yeah, the action, the actual Thunderdome fight scene, which we'll get to in spoilers, I think is actually really good. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that there's a lot of thought that's put into this world, but I also, I guess my other issue with it is that I like the Thunderdome. I like the Barter Town stuff. And I also, in a different way, like the kids stuff. But it feels like they were two totally separate plots that were just kind of forced together into the third act. It didn't feel like naturally they had any reason well, that, to combine that, into this movie that is exactly what i was getting at when i was talking about it feeling like there was missing pieces because it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like they do actually come together in a, a way that makes much sense uh right. in the third act it feels my my yeah I, I i've got some comments on that i can't talk about it till spoilers though so let's not talk about that That's anymore fine. I mean, the, the the only thing I want to say is that because I knew there were going to be kids, I was watching this first part of the movie with Tina Turner and all that, and I kept expecting there to be the part where Tina Turner says, like, oh, hey, there's these kids that, like, we lost or that were kidnapped or something like that, something that would get the two plots running together. But that just never happened. It's just a completely separate plot that starts up after the Bartertown stuff, and they only bring it back towards the end. So... That's where it felt such a difference to me is because I kept expecting there to be a link and there literally never was. Well, for me, not knowing the kids were even there, they're included mm. when they show up. It felt like I think that came out of nowhere to me and it took a while to sort of adjust to it because I was like, what is this now? We've completely changed mm. direction here after the opening act. And that felt a right. little bit weird to me. So yeah, I, I, I do think there's some pacing and some some structural issues in that sense. And it does feel like the like I, i'm okay with the kids being separate to the bar town stuff i just thought there'd be more build to them interacting and i think mm. that there's i've got some things in there to say which we'll get to in spoilers uh yeah. as far as you know like all the aesthetic stuff's great all the you know the music while it's a very different tone from the previous films i think is good like i think the music's mm-hmm. enjoyable to listen to and works well for the moments uh in the film um we should mention here that this movie is actually co-directed uh, it's yes. not just George Miller, it's George Miller and George, uh, uh, Ogilvy. Ogilvy, yeah, I, w- I was thinking about how to pronounce that, but yeah, Ogilvy will 
Sounds good to me. Uh, the mm-hmm. reason for this is Ogilvy was someone that George Miller had worked with on a miniseries or something before. He asked him to come on and help him. Uh, it's a sad story behind this, actually, is that the, yeah. pr- the producer of the first two movies, his producing partner, uh, uh, Byron Kennedy, uh, I, I think mm-hmm. it is, uh, died in a helicopter crash after Mad Max 2. And apparently George Miller uh, was having a really rough time grieving and making this movie and uh, wanted help to get through it and even questioned if he wanted to do a third one after, you know, he was like, do I do one without him? Like, So, mm. uh, yeah, it's kind of a sad story behind it. That's why the film ends with a, a dedication uh, right. to, to him. So, yeah, it, like, so that's a bit... But it does make you question then maybe in some ways, like, hey, like you know, what sequences, you know, assuming that certain sequences are just the other guy, like, you know, which stuff, what, what flourishes are maybe more attributed to him rather than George yeah. Miller. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to tell in the movie because you also feel like there's some studio notes as well where the studio, you know, Warner Bros. are putting this out as a wide release. They're giving it a budget. So maybe mm-hmm. there's this sort of, you know, and I think that's partly why there's this maybe tone shift of like, we want this to appeal in a cinema to the same people who went to see Star Wars and who went to see Indiana Jones. We want that audience to come see this. Right. And, you know, so even something like Tina Turner's character when she steps out in her outfit with her big earrings and she's got this big personality, she feels <laughs> a far cry away from, you know, the gimps and yeah. <laughs> the, the the various characters of Mad Max like, 2. <laughs> you think back to Mad Max 2 and you think, okay, let me picture the villains. And you see them there, but none of them had this, like... I don't know, persona to them, this feeling. I I think the biggest thing for me is that people in this movie just felt more clean, which I guess sure. goes back to that Hollywood aspect you were talking about before, is that it, it just doesn't feel as grimy and dirty as the first two films did the whole way through, to the point where uh, one of the actors, the guy who played the gyrocopter yes. captain from the last movie, he returns in this totally different role, but he's you can tell it's him and he has like his teeth are all super pearly white where i remember that being a thing last time where his teeth were like scraggly and really dirty the whole way through and it just it it was that little thing very early on you see that and i'm like wow they really cleaned everything about this movie up like every single thing is just that little bit nicer but almost to the film's detriment i guess is that it doesn't feel as lived in you know him playing a different character is weird because it's a very similar character, which yeah. is, is an odd choice. But okay, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest, I just assumed it was the same dude. But fair enough. Uh, I mean, by the end of the movie, they establish it isn't. So yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> it is a different guy. I mean, just in the plot, I, I see in the trivia here that apparently they had that role open for a while and they were having trouble casting it. And they're like, "Well, I mean, it's basically the same role as Bruce Spencer played before, so let's just." bring him back and uh, so they did yeah but that's just more confusing though because mm-hmm. you, you just think so, it's the same character y- yes and no because i think that that like bringing back old actors bringing them into this actually does a great job it's sort of making it feel like all of these mad max movies are legends they're like an oral tradition that's being told about the wanderer in the wasteland that is max who goes around solving these things and you're going to have like similar characters popping up because in any sort of mythology in any sort of religion, you've got characters that just kind of morph into each other. You got characters that become the same person over time. 
And so having like a guy who drives an airplane being the same guy over the course of it makes it feel like there is this mythology to it after many retellings. Okay, okay. Uh, and the movie does kind of reinforce that because both, both this and two both mm. have the idea of a child kind of telling the story of, mm. of Max and that's kind of something that's inserted in here. So, um, all right. Well, I think we're probably ready to get into spoilers and start right. talking through the movie. So, uh, spoilers. For, for, for anybody who wants to, I have done my homework. That's at the end. Yes. You never explain what the homework is, though. For if it, imagine this is someone's first episode. You just say, I've done my homework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I leave the mystery there, Pete. What's homework? I got to stay tuned in the episode to find out. And then they do. Ah, dear. All right. Spoilers from this point on for Mad Max uh, Beyond Thunderdome. You have been warned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know what you call the instrument, but I associate it with wandering the Australian outback. It's like a low... Didgeridoo. Well, there you go. You knew it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Didgeridoo. Yeah. I, yeah. I had, when I was in fourth grade, I had a project of like, talk about a country or whatever. And mine was Australia. And everything I learned there is burned into my brain forever. And specifically the didgeridoo. It's a fun word. I can't deny it. Yep. Um, but Max has got his long hair. He's wandering through the wasteland as he does. Uh, but he's kind of gravitating towards this barter town. Although on his way, he, he finds some boots in the sand, and this is important. Well, I mean, what? very very first shot is we see the a wandering caravan of camels, and the airplane guy swoops down and steals it. And it's not until afterwards that we realize that this caravan of camels was led by Max, and that's the whole reason he's wandering through the desert. Of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he's he's walking through the desert and he finds these boots in the sand. Uh, he doesn't take the boots, even though he could probably use them, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But he takes like this little, uh, it's like a it's like a little gun looking like piece, like a little sh- ornament on the side of the boots, a little bit mm-hmm. of dressing. But it happens to also be a whistle, and that yeah. ends up being a, a, a. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's used as a as a big plot point uh, later on. Mm-hmm. So. He's going through the desert, he finds the town, and we're, you know, we're introduced to this town, and there's like a barter system, and it seems to be kind of inclusive in that, you know, only certain people get to go in if they live there or whatever, because when Max wants to go in, they're not really willing to let him go, until he shows that he's capable, until he shows that he's got skills, which, you know, he does. Yeah, this- when they jump him, he just kind of pulls out his shotgun and fires at what some dude's mohawk. Uh yeah. So this this entire system for Barter Town, it's that I mean I know you didn't like it, but um, from oh god, why am I blinking on the name? Force Awakens, that's it. How she goes up to the guy with her like scrap metal, and he says like oh half a portion or whatever. It's that, but it's just everything. So this guy just runs trade deals, and that's what Barter Town is: is that you bring him whatever you have, and then you can get traded other stuff. But when Max shows up, he's just like, hey, someone stole my stuff and they ended up here. Can I get that back? And he's like, sorry, this is trading post, bro. Get out of here. Nobody wants to help you with your thing unless you got something to trade. And it's only once he pulls out the guns and stuff that's like, oh, you have skills. Okay, come with me. Yeah, and then they ask him to put put all of his weapons and the counter because they don't let them into the town with the weapons. Which mm-hmm. I thought was going to come back up later where he comes back to get them, but he never actually does. <laughs> nah, it's it's fully a joke scene of the overstocked arsenal that is Max. Which is funny because it was a big point in the last movie, like how how hard it was to find ammo. And it, uh, my first mm-hmm. thought was, oh, he's he's 
he's been searching for a while. This is how we know some time has passed, is because he's found like four guns, and he's got yeah. like a handful of shotgun shells, he's, he's got a ton of stuff with him. Still has his crossbow. Yeah, so he gets into the town, and we get to see, you know, we get the big entrance where he's, they're, they're leading them through to this elevator that takes, there's like a sort of platform with a tent over it, which is where Tina Turner lives above mm-hmm. everyone else, but we get this whole walk and talk, or even a talk, just a walk through the mm-hmm. the, the town, we get to see that it's bustling with activity, people getting haircuts, people, you know, getting, you know, whatever, like the little it's, it's, water yeah, stalls. It's like a town square sort of thing. Food stalls, all that kind of thing, but it's very bustling, it's very busy. There is an introduction of a bit of lore here that I think is new. Um, as he's walking into the town, a water salesman essentially tries to sell him. He's just like, hey, water in the desert. It's great. And then Max pulls out a Geiger counter, scans mm. the water, and it goes nuts. And it's implied that the apocalypse this time around was caused by nuclear detonation. Like they, everyone fired their nukes off, which... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the last movie was solely based off of, like, a Cold War trying to get gas and stuff. It wasn't actually nuclear, was it? No, I think they implied at the start of two that it, was, it led to bombs. It was nukes? Yeah, okay. I think so. I don't think this Fair is enough. different. No. Fair I, enough. I, I thought, I, I, just, I just forgot that because I thought this was a introduction of, like, this is the first time we actually get confirmation of nukes were dropped. But if not, so be it. I think it was definitely at least implied, if not. I mean, certainly the, the the story was that two sides fought. So I think I think mm. given the fact that we're in a wasteland, it's just naturally to assume that the the, the right. ended with nukes. But this is the Fair first enough. this is the first time I've seen them test for radiation on something, though. That's yeah, definitely that's new. True. Yeah, this is the first time radiation is a problem throughout any of Mad Max. So, yeah, um, yeah, we meet Tina Turner. We we she has like our main henchman who I don't even know what his name is, but he's very like. The whole philosophy of designing characters that are easy to recognize at a glance, even if you never learn their name, is still true in this. Because this mm. main henchman dude, he's got like a stick on his back with like a, a mask and a wig. So it's always yes. above his head. So he's, he's got like this like face, like just above his head at all times. He's a, he's also fairly short. So the face is actually at like everyone else's eye level. <laughs> so that's that. By the way, his name is Iron Bars. Iron Bars. Very good. He's a very angry little man. And... Mm-hmm. They, they invite Max in, it seems like they're being friendly, but this is actually an audition, and they try and kill him, he fights back, and is able to, you know, save himself, and sh- put on a good show, and then Tina mm-hmm. Turner smiles and says, oh, you're the first one who's passed the audition, I've got a proposition for you, uh, you'll get your vehicle back, you'll get fuel, I'll give you food, and, you know, like, a bit of everything, you'll get everything you could possibly want, it's a great deal, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, what, what do you want? So, it turns out, she puts down her plan, which is that she explains that underneath Bartertown, there is the underworld, which is where the fuel that's running any of the electricity and stuff, or even the fuel for the vehicles, is, is made. And mm-hmm. what they've done here is that they use methane for, from uh, pig shit, right? So they've got lots of pigs underground that are shitting, and they're, they're processing the pig shit, and that's how they're fueling everything. And because of this... The person who was smart enough to do all this is kind of got a lot of the power and is kind of really in charge, even if they're not the one up top making the decisions like she is. There's right. someone that she wants to take out of the picture, so she's actually completely in charge. And this is where we're introduced to Master Blaster. So it's actually two people, a tall, muscly guy who's got like a big metal mask on, so you never really see his face until, of course, it's, you know, he's later yeah. on. But The uh, reveal. Yeah. 
Uh, and then you've got like a little person who is like sitting on his shoulders or on, like a little platform behind his shoulders directing mm-hmm. him and he's the brains he's like a really smart guy he's a scientist or engineer or something but he's been the one who's mastermind this whole thing and mm-hmm. she wants him to stay alive because she kind of needs his expertise but he wants she wants max to kill uh blaster the big part of the two of them because mm-hmm. that's the muscle that's the one that enforces all of his will so if he's taken out then she can control master the moment I saw these guys on camera, yes. I was like, boss fight. Like, it's <laughs> it's just a video game boss character where you got the two different sides and they each have different strategies to take them out. Like, it's just a video game boss fight. Yeah, I I love the look of these two. I think as mm-hmm. soon as I saw them, I was like, okay, I'm into this. And this was actually the thing that I, I didn't realize was from this movie. I'd heard the phrase Master Blaster. Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, that's from this. Okay, very cool. So... Yeah, it, set, it sets this up. Okay, this is the goal. Uh, the rule is that he can't tell anyone that he's made a deal with her. It has to all mm. be kind of hush-hush. It has, to, yeah. it has to kill them, and it has to be in the Thunderdome. And it's like, okay, okay. This all tracks, makes sense. Obviously, because it's a movie, I'm like, okay, Tina, you're the real villain. You're clearly going to be the real villain. So I'm not sure how we're going to pivot to that, but definitely this is going to go south, and you're going to be the actual antagonist. See, you you say that. I didn't get that vibe up front. Like, I I understood the vibe of, okay, she's the one in control, so obviously at some point she's going to dick Max over, but I didn't think it was going to be that she's the quote-unquote real villain. I thought she was just going to be another villain. I thought it was just going to be a thing where everyone's against Max by the end and he has to, like, solve his own way out. I don't want to tell you, uh... No, I'm just saying, maybe, <laughs> you, you made it sound like it's super obvious, but maybe I'm just an idiot. Well, no, I, I, th- I thought it was obvious, but sometimes I say that and people are like, it's not that obvious. I, th- I, I thought this was obvious. I just, for me, right. it was kind of like telegraphed, like, because it's a very typical plot thing. Is like You have the hero make a deal with someone who's a little bit shades of grey, only to find out that they're the real villain, like, you know, and that, that's yeah. where it goes. Yeah, I mean, obviously that is the plot that happens. I I guess it's also maybe, like I said, I was kind of expecting Tina to send Max out to get the kids at some point. But because that never happened, she ended like, if she had that plot, it would have made her more redeemable, I guess, for me. Of was like, oh, we need to rescue these children who've been out in the wasteland forever or whatever. But that wasn't the case. So maybe I was just expecting too much from her. Yeah, it feels like you had a lot of expectations of what this was going to be going in. And I think it's almost bit you here because yeah a little bit because like effectively said well if she had that plot well yeah but like there was nothing to say that she would have that plot this is like you just heard there's kids and assumed that she would be tied to them somehow see this is why i try to go and blind all these things that way i don't come in with any sort of expectations yeah so i I never had those those thoughts but uh, he he wants to try and learn a weakness though of Mm -hmm. of uh, the big guy of blaster because you know he's big like on a straight fight he's probably gonna get his ass kicked so Mm -hmm. He basically goes down to, to work in the underground. Uh, he meets a prisoner down there. Apparently the prisoners here get sentenced to working down here uh, with collars around their necks so they can't escape. So he meets a guy down here that's doing that. And I mention that because he ends up kind of being an important character, uh, all things considered, as the movie yeah, goes on. His crime was that he killed a pig in order to feed his family. So he's a nice guy, as far as the movie says it goes. He's a he's a criminal. He broke the law, but he's a good guy. Well, yeah, but at the end when he's escaping with everyone else, I don't recall him going for his family. So I don't know if the family thing's a true story. I mean, entirely possibly not. But at the same point, like 
he already accepted he was going to die down there. I'm sure he said goodbye to his family and all that. And he's like, well, I guess I'm just out now. Goodbye. Because if you if he continued to live in the town, like, what was he going to do? There's no way to be able to save that. Yeah. So Max wants to find a weakness. Um, and basically, and this was a nice little bit of continuity from the previous movie, actually, is that he sees his, his truck, right? And... Mm. The others are like, there's like a mechanic working on it and he's telling Master Blaster, hey, there's a problem, boss. There's like dynamite under here and it'll go mm-hmm. off if we try and use it. And I was like, oh, that's a neat little callback because in the second movie, that was a trick Max did with his car, right? He had yep. an explosive set up so that no one could uh, could take it. So he steps in and says, hey, that's my vehicle. And Master Blaster's like, hey, like disarm it now. And Max puts up a little bit of a fight and tries to resist. Um... And when Max sort of evokes the name of Tina Turner, and obviously that's not her name in the movie, but that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> I like that so much more. <laughs> uh, Master Blaster calls up and makes Tina Turner kind of humiliate herself and tell everyone in the town over the speaker who's really in charge. And she's like, Master Blaster's in charge of Barter Town. Mm-hmm. All right. So it does kind of set up, okay, maybe Master Blaster is a villain. This does make them unlikable. It feels like they're a bit egotistical, yeah. right? So it's sort of pivoting you in that direction. Um, so Max ultimately goes into the truck to to deal with things. And it's when he's in there that this alarm goes off. And when the alarm goes off, Blaster starts holding his helmet in pain and starts like sort of, and it, it really is like a video game boss where you find their weakness and like this is right. the one thing that really sort of debilitates them. And he starts to really feel pain. So he, the alarm goes off or, or shuts off, I should say. And Max pulls out his little whistle to say, hey, is this also enough of a noise, that, like high pitch that'll upset him? And sure enough, it does. So he's got mm-hmm. this secret weapon. We've set up, up the Chekhov's whistle. The whistle that'll let him win the Thunderdome fight. Yep. So, yeah, it's, uh, this was all just fun because it was interesting, the characters. It was cool to see how this, this town operates and how they've got this alternative fuel source, which, again, further emphasizes the idea that it's been a good number of years now mm-hmm. into the post-apocalypse, and now these like systems have sort of started to like form of how do we survive in this world, how do we function, how do we get some of the comforts of the old days, you know, yeah. uh, and and this is something that's reinforced later with the kids because these kids all don't even know the world before the wasteland, and that's like another way it comes up later. So, right, yeah, which I mean, it's one of those things where it never says definitively how long has passed. If you go by release dates, it's been at least six years, probably more, because obviously Mad Max was technically after the apocalypse, or at least in the slow decline leading up to it. Uh, the first one, I don't know if I'd say it's after. It's kind of yeah, yeah, on the build it's, up. It's, during the war, but not quite whenever the nuke went off, probably. Um, but no, it's it's it does feel like, okay, we are at the point where we have to figure out alternative energy sources. We have to figure out how society is going to be able to continue. And you see, like, specifically with uh, Tina Turner's character, it seems that they have gone back to kind of like a warlord system where there's one person who's just in charge of things and they just have to be either the strongest or the most charismatic. And it seems like Tina Turner's taken the charismatic route where all oh, yeah. of her laws literally just rhyme. And that's why people are into it because they can chant it. Uh, yeah. That's the whole thing. There's that, but there's also the idea of like, she's really in them because she gives them entertainment. Like their entire justice mm. system revolves around the Thunderdome, which then everyone in the town 
gets excited for and watches. Oh, they, yeah. they, they're really into it, and they treat it with this pageantry like it's a ritual. And that's something you even see with the kids later on, is that every day they tell the story of how they got the way they are. And obviously it's not completely accurate, and it's in their own kind of weird way where it's a case of it's morphed over time because none of these kids actually went through the story of what happened. They're all just mm-hmm. kind of like saying vaguely things they've heard but package it in a way that makes sense to them so this idea of like groups of people needing some kind of ritual of needing some kind of uh just yeah a ritual of of uh entertainment or whatever yeah entertainment or religion or something for them to sort of like cling on to and give Mm -hmm. their life some kind of shape and meaning and that seems to be what happens in both civilizations that we meet in this movie um, I think that stuff's really interesting. Tina Turner's outfit, though, it's, it's so funny to me because I feel like if she... I'm sure she probably used this outfit on a concert because it looks like something... It, it looks like an over-the-top outfit that a singer would wear on a concert. Like, I can see Madonna or Janet Jackson wearing yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I mean, I don't think it actually was, but I think that probably the costuming department was, like, informed by the fact that Tina Turner would be wearing it. And they're like, okay... So we've got to find the middle ground between Wasteland and Popstar. And they just kind of got to here. I would argue they didn't find the middle of that. <laughs> they, yeah, they definitely true. veered more in one direction than the other. <laughs> I will say, one of the weirdest things for me is uh, the hairstyle going on. Mm. It is very much, you know, Popstar. It's very long flowing hair. But the weird part is, is that it's got this major Widow's Peak thing going on. To the point where, according to trivia, Tina Turner had to shave her head just to wear this wig. And she was fine with that. It wasn't a big deal. But it makes you think, like, what was so important about this hairstyle beyond just, like, Tina Turner's normal hair? That's something, Or something that you could just be put on top of that, you she, know? She, yeah, you know, she was into the craft of movie making. She wanted to... Yeah. To do a big thing. I was actually just... I just looked her up on Wikipedia because I wanted to see, like, how long she was, like, famous at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh she was active since the 50s, so I don't know when she had it big, but she, she'd she okay. been a professional singer for a long time. Uh, I also didn't know she died last year. That, 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 oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, for sure. That was uh, the, all the comments on the thing I was watching said, like, oh, watching this in honor of Tina Turner from like six months ago. Um, so, oh. sorry, just looking at this here, apparently, I don't know if it's her biggest hit or her peak or whatnot, but apparently her biggest hit was What Love Got to Do With It. And that was number one for three weeks straight in May of 1984. So it was literally just before this movie came out where she had a number one hit for three straight weeks. I mean, the breakdown on her wiki page, early success is 60-65 and then mainstream success is 66-75. So it sounds like she was still like a mm. known quantity yeah. by that she point. She may have just like hit her peak peak right yeah. before this movie came out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. This was when she was... Uh... She was with Ike Turner. This was like a duo mm. performance. And then she went solo in 1976. Uh, yeah. And then... Yep, early career resurgence, 1983. So yeah, it was. she was literally just about to come on the come up as this movie was being she, produced. She was making her comeback. Yep. Uh, so I was going to joke, why wasn't there a Simply the Best uh, Easter egg or like sly reference in this? But it may be because that song didn't exist yet. I don't know when she did that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if there was going to be one, it would be what's love got to do with it. And I could I could think of a few good places I could fit in there. 
I don't, there's no love in this movie. What are you talking about? But that's the point. That's the point of the thing. Where like one of the kids is like, but wait, what, don't you don't you have love in your heart? And she's like, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> uh, her name, by the way, is Anti Entity, which I don't even think I caught the word entity at, at all nah, in this movie. Well, that's the thing. They call her Auntie, and then Entity sounds so close. She may, it may just be the Australian accent throwing you off. Oh, I love this. Auntie, Auntie. Her chart success continued with Better Be Good to Me, Private Dancer, and We Don't Need Another Hero, parentheses, Thunderdome. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's clearly her song playing over the credits at the end. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I say that. I Literally, um, for like, f- what, how, how long was it between Avatar and Avatar 2? Uh, like like four, 10, 14 years? 13, 13 years. For 13 years, I assumed Celine Dion was singing in the end credits song in Avatar because I just, I heard a woman singing of that style. I assumed it was her because she did Titanic and she's buddy-buddy with James Cameron. Turns out that was Leona Lewis that whole time and I just made made a weird assumption. It was probably written for Celine Dion though. (laughs) So, anywho... um, so, so yeah, like he has to pick the fight. That's how you get the Thunderdome going. You, you just like challenge someone, and mm-hmm. so he does. He just he basically just stands in front of him, and because he already kind of like went against them underground, very quickly, Master Blast was like, "We want Thunderdome," and the crowd all starts gathering. They're all excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tina Turner has like a little, it's like a, it's like a little ski lift that goes from her mm-hmm. like little platform up there. That goes down to the top of the Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that was like a really funny little it's, visual. So, uh, if we're talking about Thunderdome now, I do want to bring up a few things about it. Yes, I always imagined it bigger. So I always it, imagined I, it to be like this big, massive set piece thing. It was small, and I thought it was going to be as well. I, ha- I have to say, I also well, I've always heard you know, two men will enter, only one can leave, mm-hmm. and that's a big thing. I had no idea that at the start of this fight, they're they're both attached to like sort of bungee rope harnesses, yeah. and they're kind of like jumping around. But honestly, it made it really interesting because I was going and thinking, oh, it's just going to be like a gladiator style combat thing where they're just trying to fight, and it's you know it may be a good fight scene if they film it well, but mm-hmm. this made it more unique where you've got the stuntman for for Max doing like sort of flips to get away from Master Blaster and the bungee yep. thing that he's attached to is making him jump really high. So I was like, oh, this feels really different because there's all this mobility that comes with this. <laughs> I, I really do like how different it is, but I also feel like there are absolutely no rules to this whatsoever in terms of physics. Oh, sure. Because like they start off the match and it's shown that they're dragged back to the walls and they've got like tension in their rubber bands. So when it zooms when they let go they zoom towards each other and then they kind of just dangle in the air for a while fighting each other but then slowly they start to be able to walk on the ground which doesn't make any sense to me because if you were dangling in the air how did you all of a sudden get the ability to be on the ground so yeah it's it, physics just kind of takes a day off for making it look cool i'm all right with that yeah but it did every once in a while i'd just be like but wait how could that work with what you've given me so far yeah it's it's but it's different and like there's weapons mm. at the top of the thunderdome that if they drop if they sort of bounce up to they can grab a weapon and there's like a sledgehammer a chainsaw a big spear things like that yep. uh this is something that certainly the smaller wrestling companies have really ripped off in the over the years where they're like it's a cage match but there's weapons at the top of the cage you can oh, if course. you get to the weapon you can use it i i especially love the fact that they 
I I don't want to say ripped off because that's obviously not what happened because this one came first. But all I could think of when there's a point where Max is not got a weapon yet, but Blaster does. He just keeps on jumping up to the top of the cages. And all I can think is Bonesaw versus Spider-Man <laughs> where he's up in the cage. And he's like, get down here. And he's like, no, I'm going to stay up here for a while. Sam Raimi probably likes this movie. Oh, most definitely. Uh, I, you know, it, it plays it well because you've got all the jumping around stuff, especially once Master Blasters get a weapon and Max doesn't. But it also has this thing where Max is trying to get the whistle out, but he can't because he keeps getting grabbed and then he mm-hmm. drops it. And you're like, okay, so now he just has to survive for a little bit. But you, in the back of your head, you're like, okay, eventually he's going to find that whistle and that's going to be how he wins. And sure enough, yeah, yeah that's what he, what he does. He, he's able to get to it. But it, there's a lot of like almost getting it and then he's like, he has to dodge at the last second or something. Mm-hmm. You know? So they really play with the suspense of him getting to his secret weapon. And then once he does, it does just work like a charm. Uh, Blaster starts to hold his head. Um, he's in pain. And Max swings his big hammer at his head repeatedly until the helmet comes flying off and this is where it takes an interesting turn because yeah. i really like the end of this where max is standing over him he's he's won all he has to do is give him the killing blow but he looks at the you know blaster's face and he looks mm-hmm. kind of innocent in a weird way like you know he, he doesn't look like some big scary dude he looks like confused or whatever well, they they make it very clear he has some sort of intellectual disability. Well, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's made clear because Master jumps mm. up and says, "Hey, you know, he he's, you know, he, he mentally he's quite young. Like this isn't fair." Mm. And you know, Max, being the hero of the story, turns around, looks at Tina Turner, and says, "This wasn't part of the deal." Which, of course, immediately Master clocks that word and is like, "Wait, deal? What deal? What's this? Mm. There was a deal in place." Um, so. Tina just has her men shoot some arrows at, at, at him while he's down, kills a blaster, a bla- yeah. a blaster. and uh, Max tries to leave, but it's like, no, you're getting arrested because you, you uh, well, told it's not him even, it was a deal. Yeah, it was not even he's getting arrested. Um, basically, the guard at the door is saying like, no, I've been instructed, like, you didn't kill him, you don't get to leave, you, you didn't fulfill your end of the deal. And then the pig killer guy actually starts a chant saying two men enter one man leave kind of forcing tina into a door saying like he obeyed the law one man is dead yeah, he should be allowed to leave now basically what it's doing is, is the, the crowd chanting you know one man leaves is it's almost like that's you know from gladiator where mm-hmm. the emperor walking phoenix is a, is a shithead he wants to kill russell crowe but the crowd love him too much so he has to sort of like begrudgingly let him live and give yep. him the thumbs up but that's, even Tina doesn't want to go that far. But that's that's what I'm saying. Is effectively this is trying to put her in that position. But she's smart enough to go. But there's another law, and here's the other law, which says that because he did this thing, he gets this punishment. And then we see what that punishment is it's, in the next scene. The law is if you break a deal, you face the wheel. Yes, and there's a spinny wheel which picks the punishment, and you know we get to that in a, in a, in a second, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, effectively though, like she was going to arrest him and give either give him the wheel or whatever. Probably, it probably would have just been the same thing. But I mean, she probably would have killed him if it wasn't for the fact that everyone there was around and being able to see it. Uh, yeah, possibly. Um, but she, she, you know, does this. We get the the punishment. I can't remember what was phrased on the wheel. But there was. Hold on, I had the list of the trivia of like all the things on the wheel. But the thing that he specifically rolled on was gulag. 
Right, okay. Which essentially is just send you out in the desert with no chance of survival. That's basically all it comes yes, down to. Yes, but not without putting a funny head on him so that he looks silly. Uh, they, they set him backwards on a horse and they slap the back of the horse and he he's, he's tied up as well. His hands are tied and he just gets ridden out into the desert as far as the horse can go until the horse just outright collapses because it can't go any yep. further. I do, in terms of the mask that's on him, there's also a few things later on in this movie, uh, specifically with the kids, they, I think they do a really good job of something that shows up in a lot of apocalyptic media nowadays, which is like advertising and like propaganda, not, not propaganda, but like media stuff, like characters and like McDonald's arches and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that shows up here in this wasteland, but they don't talk about it. They don't think about it in terms of what it was, only what it can serve them now. So like when they slap, put this guy's head on top of it, it feels like it was like a mascot costume or something. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but nowadays it's just, we're using this as a torture device. Goodbye. But it's just one of those things that's left over post-apocalypse. And I I like that because I don't think that was in the previous two that much. I think what's interesting to me about this is that, do they always put a silly head when they do this punishment? And if so, how many silly heads do they have sitting around to facilitate this punishment? I mean... I think they probably do, and I think that it's one of those things where it's probably just what's traded in. Like, someone from mm. the Wasteland be like, hey, I found this McDonald's costume. Do you want it? And it's like, yeah, sure. You can have a, I don't know, a, a quarter tank of gas for that. <laughs> Go nuts. Maybe maybe they have to settle for a funny hat if they don't get, like, a good head. Cause oh, yeah. This is really specific. Getting a full head costume is, you know, that's not I that mean, common. I don't, it doesn't even make sense as to why it's there. He's tied up. It's not like he can do anything about it. Just putting that on him is an extra humiliation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a really important point in the movie, though, because this is very much just the transition to the next part of the movie. And I think at this point in the story, I was thinking, okay, they've done this tomb, they've sent him out into the desert, and I think mm-hmm. the big problem with the next chunk of the movie for me, which doesn't even anything to do with the kids themselves, is the fact that. I kept like, okay, we're obviously going to go back there. There's no way we're not going back to Tina Turner and having an ending that involves that town. It's just not possible. And right. I kept waiting for what Mad Max's motivation was to want to go back. And my assumption as he was like, you know, riding out into the desert is that he still wants his stuff back and maybe now he wants revenge. Maybe now he wants to fight back because of what they've done to him or something. Mm-hmm. And that never becomes the case. In fact, you know, he's left for dead. Um, he's only saved well one because the 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 prisoner guy who kind of talked to him a little bit sends out his pet monkey with a canteen of water for him to drink so 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 real quick i think the implication is that this was max's pet monkey am i wrong there because the monkey was in the back of the caravan during the opening scene oh was it i don't remember fair enough yeah it was so when did max get a pet monkey there's a lot of time between two and three. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I guess, but a monkey's not... It doesn't feel like one of those things you just come across. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, I killed a guy, he had a monkey, and I just adopted it as my pet. Oh, but I guess it. the dog got boring. Yeah, he had a dog in the last one. He's got a monkey in this one. What do you want? All right. It, 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 when I watch Fury Road, is he going to have, like, a tiger? Is that what we're... Are we just going with more and more exotic pets? So, the monkey gets the water to him... And then out of nowhere, someone finds him, right? He's basically dying in the desert. And mm. someone finds him, a young woman, and she starts dragging him 
somewhere. And mm. I was like, okay, this is a new character we're introducing, and you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. And she takes him back to effectively another community, which is made up entirely of kids. She, she's hard and like one other guy, like the two oldest ones, but they're still kids. They're still like teenagers. Yeah, and then they're like on the verge of eighteen. Yeah, and then everyone else is younger than that, and it's all kids. And as Max wakes up, they they call him um, Captain Walker. Walker, and they think he's this Captain Walker guy. Max wakes up. They've cut his hair. He's very confused, of course, but they all start kind of calling him this name. They all start kind of worshipping him, and they, they don't understand why he's not responding to what they're expecting to. So they think it's a test, and then the the girl, uh, what was her name here? Savannah. Uh, Savannah. Uh, she, she is given the task of telling the story, and there's some interesting elements to this that I actually quite like, which is... yeah. So the idea being that you've got this community of kids, none of whom remember the world from before, right? They they grew up post-apocalypse and they talk a little bit funny because they're saying words that we understand, but they're saying it in ways that are a little bit off kilter. Like, yeah, well, what's you so funny? Say that. You say that, but it, it, as they first started talking, I'm like, is this just Australian slang? Is, is that all I'm hearing here? Is just, this is slang no. for Australia. I know it's not, but because as it progresses, it obviously gets more and more. But like, there's a certain point at the beginning where I was like, is this just them talking? Is this just how the kids <laughs> talk in the 80s in Australia? Is that it? Ah, uh, such an American, like, yeah. attitude. <laughs> yeah. Look, is this just a weird foreign thing? <laughs> the 80s were a weird time for slang, and Australia already has some strange terms so i thought maybe this was just the collision of the two these kids were not dropping anywhere near enough c-bombs for this to be authentic australian slang from the 80s okay that's fair that's uh, fair that's that's the, that's the thing i'll i'll point out uh no yep. like so she you know they're saying things like um you know we every day we have the telling and uh, mm. we we have to pass on the knowing so that the 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 birthdays of tomorrow will know, and you know, I may be phrasing it slightly different than they did, but that was the kind of way they spoke. Yeah, was, the gist of it, you could understand what they were saying, but they were saying it in this this strange way, and you could tell that they thought that there was this plane that a captain was going to show up, and they think Max is this captain who will lead them to the promised land, effectively some magic place that's still perfect, that's still functioning. Yeah, they they the. Their previous thing they have written on the walls is essentially the history, the oral tradition that's been passed down to them. And they retell the story seemingly every night in order to remind themselves of what happened and also continue it for the next generations. But I really, really, really like this sequence because it it's so clear to somebody outside of it what happened. It's it's There was a nuclear bomb and there was a captain or something that got a bunch of people on a plane and tried to escape it. It ended up crashing and they set up in this general area. And then it turns out that uh, basically all the adults kind of went out to form a rescue party and they left the kids behind and then they just never made it back. No one ever came back yeah. to the kids. And that's why and you they keep on waiting. You know, yeah, you'd assume that the two older kids were maybe like, yeah, they were maybe seven or something like that when this happened, you know? Right. Uh, yep. And that that's why they have been able to tell this story to the younger kids, but because they were so young when they experienced whatever they remember, it's mm -hmm. this weird kind of, you know, morphed version of it where it's told in this way. Yeah. And, and there's I, a bunch of, there's a bunch of remaining stuff as well that I really like where 
they don't know what it does. It's essentially just like well, a yeah, yeah, foreign is, concept. This is yeah. what I was going to get to, is that they've got mm-hmm. the, the little photo thing, right? Where you put your mm-hmm. eyes in the goggles and you look at the photos. And and this is actually before my time, so I don't even know what it's called. But they, they put the photos in and they're showing it to Max and they're saying, have you ever seen this before? And it's a photo of a city, right? It's a city with all the lights on and a mm-hmm. photo of a highway and stuff like that. And one of my favorite things about this scene is that Max just casually says, oh, that's a city. They're called cities. There used to be a ton mm-hmm. of them. And the kids look like, cities, cities. It's like, they never heard this word before. They never had yeah. a word to call what a city was. They just sort of referred to it in other ways. They, the same thing with like the term skyscraper. They called it something else. And he said like, oh yeah, there were skyscrapers everywhere. It's like, oh, skyscrapers, that's it. That's the word. That's the thing. <laughs> God, that makes so much sense. Um, but no, what I, uh, what I really do like about the segment though is that all of the kids have like stuff that was on the plane. So for instance, one of them has like a staff that has a record on it and they know they get the concept that the record needs to spin and then sound will come out, but they just can't piece it together. So like as they're waiting on Max to come back from his like coma, basically they're spinning the record on this staff and then someone's just repeating like, delta fox like niner or something the, like that because the, they've got the captain's like headset from the right. cockpit he's, he's wearing that and he's sort of like talking into hoping that someone will talk back and yeah because they know that's how it should work in the vague sense but they just don't know the specifics and i love this whole sequence because it feels really thought out about what kind of things would survive that oral tradition and what kind of things wouldn't for instance uh when the they show the nuclear bomb painting on the wall. They call it the pox eclipse, which both mm. of those independently, negative words, a pox and an eclipse, bad things. So it like feels like it makes sense that they would mishear the word apocalypse and replace it with two other words that are equally as negative. I just, I don't know. I just really like this whole segment the whole way through because it feels like it's simultaneously lore for the Mad Max world as a whole, while also being just really interesting world building for these kids individually. I like it from that side of things. I like it from Mm -hmm. that perspective. In the movie, though, where it's slotted, it feels like we've just turned into a different movie after Mm -hmm. that opening, like, chunk. And I think here I was like, okay, but, like, okay, where are we going from here, though? What exactly are we we, we doing with this? And I think my frustrations built a little bit. When it became very clear that Max had no intention of going back to the town and he's just mm-hmm. he's like no we should stay here to the point where the end of this segment is effectively once he's proven to them that he's not this captain and that he's not going to fly them anywhere because they take him to a plane like the, the plane that crashed is in the desert nearby yeah they take him there it's like here it is fly it for us take us to the promised <laughs> land and he's like uh nope that's not happening he he actually tries to stop some of them who want to go and find you know you know wherever he came from because like if you made this journey it's going to be hard and you almost died doing it but it, we can maybe make it there so we're going to go find it and max is like no that place is terrible they'll abuse you you've got a good thing going here there's a water source you've got stuff like you know set up camp here stay here this is going well and it, mm-hmm. to the point where he actually grabs um uh it's like one of the kids has got like a spear with like a, a thing on it and all that he grabs it, pulls some of it off, because he's obviously noticed this, that it's actually a gun they've used as the pole for the spear. Yeah. And he, like, grabs, like, some bullets they've got dangling as decoration. 
And I like that they're just sort of dangling there because they don't know that they go in the gun. They're just yeah. different things to them. So he grabs them and he fires this gun almost as if to like show an act of God to these kids because they'll be like, whoa, what was that? That was scary. That was a loud noise. This is my boomstick. Effectively. So it's like, okay. So he's actively trying to stop some of the kids from going back there. Mm-hmm. And then after they get sleep, it turns out that the kids that wanted to go have left anyway. So yeah. at this point in the movie, the, the goal, the mission has become him going out to try and save and bring the kids back that have left to go to the town. So all this time, and by this point, we're probably it's probably a good half hour since we left the town. Mm-hmm. There's been no reason or motivation to go back there. And I do think that maybe hurts the overall momentum of the movie because it feels that we've shifted gears so much and now yeah. he has no interest in going back. He doesn't really seem to care about going back that... I know we're eventually going to somehow, like it's going to happen because it's a movie and we're going to get back there, but Mm. there's like no impotence from him to go back there. He kind of just ends up back there because when he does find the kids to save them and he saves them from some quicksand and it looks like one of the kids has died because, you know, like when he pulls her out of the quicksand, it looks like someone else was hanging on to her that's not there anymore. So it's very implied. It's well done in that sense. You, you You get it without showing anything too graphic or, you know. Yeah, it it implies like okay, this girl thought that she had everything figured out, and that's why she's leading this group. But then they're lost in this desert, essentially, and one of their own is killed via something that she, like if they had stayed back, he wouldn't have died. So yeah, it it gives this girl a little bit of hubris and how she overcomes that. Yeah, but they realize oh, we're actually closer to the town now, right? We can see the lights in the distance, so mm-hmm. it's like shit. The town's our only hope. Let's go. And I think my big problem getting into this this last chunk of the movie um, is that when they're going back into the town, they're sneaking in, Max does say we're looking for we're master, we're looking for the little guy, right? Mm-hmm. And they're in the they're in the vents, they're sneaking around and they're looking for him. I think my main thing here is that it's unclear how much of a plan Max has at this point. Given that he didn't even want to come back, like any plan he has formed, he's only done it in this short little distance of time of him seeing the town saying, okay, we have to go there. But all of a sudden, once he's back there, it kind of feels like there's more of a plan, like there's more of a purpose that I don't think the the, the movie's really set us up for. And if yeah. anything, it's actually the, the prisoner who seems to have more of like a goal that Max just kind of goes along with once he's in there. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a little bit wishy-washy as to what he actually wants to do at this point in the movie and what his yeah. goals are. There's the, like you said, they go in and they say, we got to go find the little guy. We got to find the master. But I don't think the movie ever says why. Like, I would think the only reason they're here in the town is basically to stock up on water and enough stuff to make it back to the other tribe. But it doesn't seem like that's the goal from Max's perspective, because there's no reason that getting master would help. So, well, I I actually, I I do think... Okay, I I think there is a reason why he wants Master, and I think it becomes clear as the movie's going on. I think the idea is is that Master's smart enough to set up a society. He's smart enough to set up systems, to create energy, to do whatever, right? He Mm -hmm. realizes that he's so useful. The fact that Tina Turner wants to keep Master because he's the brains of the operation. Because one of the things we do see like right after the first chunk of the movie is that he says, I'm not going to fix anything. Because if something breaks down downstairs and the power goes off, and he's like, no, 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 I'm not fixing anything. And then they actually sort of threaten him by putting them in with the pigs uh, to, to scare the shit out of him and then bring him back up. 
And yeah. when we find him here at this part of the movie, he's living in like a pen. They've made like a little pen for him in the middle mm. of the pigs so that he's like, he's living a horrible life and he's being kept around just because he knows how to, to make things and fix things. And so my assumption is, is that Max thinks he can give the kids a better life. He can go back with the kids and wherever they are, he can, right. you know, use the water, maybe make a watermill or something. So, you know, he clearly knows how to, make things i mean they do have a literal entire downed boeing plane like yeah i'm sure he can come up with something out of an entire plane still being intact so i think it's it's not so much about saving him because i think at this before he sees where he is he doesn't really have a reason to want to save him i suppose Um, other than just the idea that he because obviously he felt sympathy once he saw what, what blaster actually was like who he was but, yeah, I I feel like that's more sympathy towards Blaster than it was Master, because we see that Master, from the beginning, is just a prick to Max. Oh, for so, sure, yeah. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think he earns, in Max's eyes, the redemption, but to the audience, we see that he is just being tortured, essentially, and that redeems him for us. Well, yeah, and maybe not redemption, but I do, again, this is one of these things that would just felt really obvious to me, is that the second Master is kind of crying out because he's friend or whatever you want to call blaster to him his yeah. you know his other half Ad- adoptive son yeah the way he cries out once that happens instantly i'm like okay max is going to help him by the end of the movie because now mm. they have a reason to be on the same side um i i see where you're coming from but i took it more as like in return of the jedi where there's the rancor pit and then there's that guy who once the rancor is killed he's like is crying over it we don't ever come back to that character. He's not a redeemable character. He's just like the dude who's upset that his pet essentially died, you know? Yeah, but this was a more established character than that. That guy was basically an extra. This was more someone who'd been set up and sure enough, obviously they end up kind of working together or at the very least Max ends up saving him along with all Mm -hmm. the kids here at the end. So I don't know. So very brief fast forward here. He's got like, swag he's got like a full suit and stuff that he's saved on this truck thing that we end up getting to where in the hell did he have all that i don't have a good answer for you Uh, the only thing i could think is that he's been in this place since the apocalypse and that was his like stuff that was his original thing yeah it's it's worth mentioning he's not a young guy either he is older no so he is significantly so maybe he did just outlast it and this is just all of his stuff from beforehand well i mean if someone max's age obviously comes from before the wasteland times uh mm-hmm. then obviously this older guy does oh yeah uh, obviously he was from before but like it seems like he managed to maintain all of his like worldly goods through the apocalypse is what i'm saying he had like a chest that he's just kept this entire time that's not that far, it, hard to believe it's just a chest of stuff no. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just seems like the sort of thing where in the wasteland, that's sort of like a, a nice suit is the first thing you would trade off. You'd be like, look at this fabric, very nicely woven. Give me water, please. <laughs> yeah, but he set up this whole system. So he's yeah. I, I think he's been better, like, insulated from all that than maybe most that's people have. Yeah. But yeah, this I think this transition in the movie, even though I like a lot of what happens once we get into kind of the, the thrust of what's going on is... Basically, uh, there's a bit of a fight. Uh, Iron Pole bars, bars. <laughs> Iron mm-hmm. bars tries to fight Max in that and ends up getting kicked into the the, the pig shit. So he's mm. 
Uh, and it's really disgusting that because when he sits back up, he actually has some of it in his mouth and he spits it yeah. out. And I know it's not really pig shit when they shot the, the movie, but it still looks nasty. No, that's in a shiver down my spine as I saw it. I was like, eh, gross. Ugh. Don't do uh, it. But yeah, it turns out there's like a train down here and like Max, the kids and uh, Master get on the train and ride the train out along with the uh, the prisoner who's kind of the one driving the train. The killer. Yeah. All right. And there's this just track coming out of the town and I was like, I feel like they should have really emphasized and set this up earlier on that there's a train with a train track that they can use. Yeah, it, it goes back to the thing in Road Warrior where when he came into the town that had the like oil drill and all that, we got very specific layouts, not only of the geography, but like everything they had available in terms of defense and offense. Mm. We, we got the whole gist of the area. This one, yeah, it just feels like it wasn't quite as well explained where they can just introduce a train line and... That's not an easy feat. Like, this is still post-apocalypse. To have a train that's just been buried down here the whole time feels like a big deal that should have been covered in the first act. Yeah, it feels like there should be a reason why someone's even went to the effort of making sure it still works. Like, maybe Master mm-hmm. makes sure this still works because he sees this as his escape like, button, yeah, right? This is his safety thing. Like, But it's something to just to set it up because it is such a specific thing. Um, it's not as quite the same level as like the kids kind of showing up out of nowhere like mm-hmm. almost in the in the previous chunk of the movie but i still kind of felt that same feeling again where i'm like oh there's a train track all of a sudden that feels out of nowhere yeah so you know it's, it's one of those little disconnects that you get sometimes with these things that said though once we're on the train track and then all the villains are chasing after me you know, tina turner reassures her town hey we're going to get master back don't worry we'll rebuild and anyone who took him will kill them for daring to take our our scientist man yeah, but again, I, I think that's good characterization because wanting to maintain your society is not an inherently evil thing. Like, these people all rely on the methane systems to work in order to live. So her saying, we're going to go get the guy who knows how to run that stuff back, is just looking out for her people. It's not an inherently evil task. It's well, just... well, yeah, but hold on now. The way she's yeah. treating him and making sure that she can control him is evil. It is yes. villainous. So I have no but, sympathy for her character at this point. No, no, I'm not saying sympathy, but I am saying that all of the different factions here have this moral grayness to them, where Master Blaster, he was obviously a prick, but now he's being abused. So there isn't exactly sympathy there, but there is, like, you you can see where he's coming from from a perspective. Same thing with Tina Turner. Same thing with the uh, tribe people who wanted to leave. Like, they were promised this whole thing in their, essentially, their religion that this guy would show up and he would lead them back to the promised land, basically. But that didn't end up happening, so they got anxious about it and left. Everyone has their reasons, but nobody is definitively in the right. And I really like that about the story sure. yeah i mean i think for me master it, it has real comeuppance for how much of a prick he is at the start of the movie is kind of the death of of blaster i think that's kind of mm-hmm. like he's kind of made that bed like the idea that the others are colluding against him like this to take him to take his friend out of the picture is kind of like a result of how he's treating them because they want to take control forcefully and make him a slave to their needs rather than being some mutual beneficial agreement to to work on everything. 
you say mutually benefit, but like there was the point where all it took was him having his ego offended, where he shut off all of the gas to the entire town. That felt more to me like he was in that same level of despot than even Tina Turner was. No, that's what I'm saying. He was in the wrong at that point. I'm saying mm-hmm. that his comeuppance for that, like the error of his ways was, oh, this led to collusion against him. And then that led to the death of his friend. Like he, he made his bed by the way he was acting and that's what that I, resulted in. I see what you're saying. I just don't feel like it was enough. I don't feel like he he got enough comeuppance against him there. Uh, sure, sure. You, yeah, but that's, that's that's just a matter of opinion. Like, he's like you can no, say yeah, that's no. enough or not. I, I'm I'm saying that that's how this is functioning as a as a storytelling mechanic. Mm. Um, he gets his comeuppance in that sense, which means that he's more sympathetic to the audience because him caring about Blaster like a son or whatever makes him feel more human all of a sudden he's not just this prick who's threatened to shut off the energy he's a human being who cares about someone and you can kind of maybe start to understand a little bit and then the way he's treated afterwards you're like okay clearly tina turner is being villainous and is she this way because of how master blaster was treating her or is was she always this way and it was always kind of this game of like two i mean arguably you could say that she was always this way and master blaster got worse in the first place because he had to kind of battle her in her own terms right Right. this idea that if he did just let her have more control he would lose too much control and it would it would you know the dominoes would fall that way i mean that's just kind of speculation based on what little we do see yeah i mean it makes sense uh Mm -hmm. so uh, but I think that's interesting because ultimately, you know, once we get out into this 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 final big set piece section of the movie, where Max is on the train with the kids and with the the, the prisoner, what I thought was interesting about this, with all the others chasing after them in their various buggies and cars and whatnot, one of which was oddly coated in cow print. That was an interesting. Look, man, you got to have style here in the outback. If you it's... can take cow, you take cowhide. It made me think of Wacky Races. I don't know if you ever watched Wacky Races growing yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it made me think of like one of their themed cars. But anyway, yeah, I can see it. Uh, I think it. I think it was more so because that's the one that Max immediately hijacks. So it's a visual cue of like it stands out against all this other just kind of metal gridwork yeah, thing. You know which one's him because he's in the gimmicky one. Yeah, right. But I think what I liked about this to separate it from the previous two because the first movie is very different in that it's more traditional cars on roads because society's still kind of functioning. The mm-hmm. second movie. You know, we had the gimmick of the big oil tanker and all the vehicles around it. This felt like an evolution to that to me, where the train is on a track, so they're kind of an easy target, and they can't because they can't turn. They can't just turn and try and yeah. evade. They can't hide somewhere else. The, the the people chasing them know exactly where to go to find them because all they have to do is follow the track. So it makes them more vulnerable in a way that I thought added a little bit of stakes to them being almost being sitting ducks on this train because they can't really do anything to disguise where they are or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the oil tanker was in the same kind of situation. Like there was, mm. as long as they were on that long single stretch of road, there was nothing they could really do to fight back except for what they brought with them in terms of like gunnery on top. But yeah, no, this is far more of a thing of like, look, you could easily cut them off if you just go far enough down the track. Like it's not going to be something yeah. that you like, there could be a turn off at some point. Well, that's why I said it's an evolution because I, I definitely recognize that the tanker obviously had a lot of similarities in that sense, mm-hmm. but this is more definitive no they're on a track there is nothing they can't just go off road 
uh, yeah. with this. But that being said, I really like that they took advantage of the fact it was a train as well, because there's actually two cars to this train. There's like the engine up front and then yeah. there's the secondary car. And they do the bit where um, in order to escape the bad guys, the pin ends up getting pulled that's keeping them together. So the engine separates its way out yeah. from the rest of the train. Tina Turner grabs uh, Master and has a hold of him, but luckily Max is on like above her and just lifts him up and then jumps over to the front car mm-hmm. uh, to get away from him. That's quite late on in this set piece, though. There's a whole lot of stuff with uh, the vehicles, you know, trying to ram into them, flipping. Yep. Uh, there's a great bit where uh, Iron Bars, who's dirty as shit because he fell in the pig shit, uh, mm-hmm. like his vehicle explodes in front of the train but it turns out he's not in dead he's actually just sort of like comically pressed up against the front of the train grill I was wondering how you would feel about that because that's the most it feels like it gets pure cartoon in this movie it's very cartoony like, I, I have to admit the reveal that he was there was funny like I did kind of mm-hmm. chuckle at it uh, yeah. and maybe the movie at least set me up for this is a bit more lighthearted, so we can do something like that without it feeling mm-hmm. like we're completely but if they'd done that at the start of the movie it probably would have bothered me more because I'd be like wait a minute this is so cartoony but yeah. it's almost like they sort of gradually like now this is a bit more lighthearted, and they kept doing more silly by the time you get to the kids and like I say they kind of made me think of Ewoks a little bit <laughs> yeah uh, the you know because that's the thing I like the conceptually what the kids are in terms of what they represent in the world building like you said but mm-hmm. They're also, they, they do change the tone of the movie quite a bit. And there's a lot of, like, Max yeah. getting, you know, having to deal with the fact that they're being all flighty and jumping around. And well, there's, there's, they specifically take that record thing that I said earlier. They had a record. And as they're in the back of this uh, train car, they find a record player and they put two and two together. They're like, oh, this is it. That, that's, my, that's my favorite part of it, is that they see mm-hmm. the record player and they look at each other and go, does this look like it? This goes, could this be it? And I love that they put the record, they put the vinyl on it, and they're like, okay. Uh, and he, he starts talking into his headset. He's like, all right, Alpha, Deco, blah, blah. and then yeah. Max just happens to be uh, shimmying in the outside of the train, and he looks out the window and sees them trying to get this record to play. So he just leans in, because he obviously remembers what a record player is. So he just leans mm-hmm. in and puts the needle on the thing, hits the button, and it start, and it turns out to be like a how to learn French uh, yeah. audio Repeat tape. after me. Bonjour. And the kids are like, Bonjour. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. That was a that was a nice payoff. Like this is the thing. Once it gets to the, the big train set piece, I was mostly just having fun again with everything it was doing. Yeah. Because it's an entertaining, you know, set of sequences. It's it's fun. There's stunts, uh, and that's something that's been very good about this movie or all this whole franchise up until this point. Mm-hmm. Uh all that stuff was still really, really solid. I I enjoyed it. I don't want to because at the beginning I said the third act kind of fell apart for me. I didn't dislike the things that were shown. It was only in comparison to how big and bold the set pieces were from the last movie that made it feel like it was such a massive step back. It didn't feel like there was as much action or tension as there was in Road Warrior. But I liked what they did do from its own just viewing the movie individually thing. Sure. I don't even know if I'd say that two is bigger necessarily. I think I, I think it depends what way you mm. look at it because in some ways this does feel bigger. It's definitely a bigger budget and it's got more. Yeah. Uh, there's more to it in some ways, but I, I mean I would agree the stakes were better in two. Like, there's a reason why two is the classic. Two is the one that everyone remembers because one of the things that works so well in it is just how much they set up that final chase and why they were doing what they right. were doing and what the importance of it was. Whereas this sort of comes together in a rush where. 
like I said, it's, we've not really defined what the goals of a lot of the characters are, other than just escape from the town. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, as it goes on, and you know, when we get to the ending, where like the plane, so they get to the the, the pilot guy, right? We finally get back to him. Um, yeah, they reach the end of the railroad, and his son is just standing there, like this is a stick up. And then they look and see Tina Turner's crew driving in. He's like, "All right, never mind, bye," and just runs off. Yeah, and he leads them to a ladder that goes down to like a secret area, and that's where the dad is, the pilot. And mm-hmm. and this is where I got confused because I thought Max was recognizing from the last movie. If I'm honest, Same. for a minute there I was, but then their interaction is very clearly not like, "Oh my God, Max, you're still alive." What? Yeah, it's 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 very strange, but. He's like, hey, it's your lucky day. You've got a plane, right? He's like, aye. And obviously that was at the start of the movie, so he knows he has a plane in this movie. It's not just a reference to the last movie, if that's what it was. It's it's a reference to the start of this one. And he's like, okay, take these kids in a plane. And this was something else. Like, again, I'm going to say something, and you'll probably disagree with it, but I thought it was really obvious when the kids said that they had this whole religion religion effectively based around that the prophecy says they'll get to fly in a plane. I was like, oh, we've got a pilot character like I'm 99% sure they're going to be getting to fly by the end of this movie. It it wasn't obvious to me at that point, but the moment that the, cause I wasn't sure how much the pilot character was even going to come back. Like he, he shows up in that opening scene and then he's just gone for like the rest of the movie up until this point. So I thought he might've just been like a little, Hey, here's this opening thing just to get Max separated from his stuff. And then we're going to ignore it for the rest of the time. But uh, no, as soon as the kids showed up at the end of the train track, I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to fly. That's yeah. what's going to happen just, now. It, it gets, like, it feels like you, you almost, like, talk yourself out of, like, the obvious dramatic thing they're going to do. Because they've set up A, they've set up B, so obviously C mm-hmm. has to happen. And that's what that felt like to me. Is like, okay, you've established as a character who flies things. You've given me these kids who dream have dreamed of flying on a plane so, yeah like they're going to get the miracle because in the wasteland it's a miracle that they'll ever get to experience that and sure oh. enough we run into this pilot and they try and fly the plane but they can't take off right they, they could try as hard as they can but they just can't quite take off they're having to dump all the extra stuff that's on the plane and they get to that cliff effectively in the desert it's like shit we, we have to turn back and tina turner and her like you know army of vehicles are coming towards us and the cap, the, the pilot's like, hey, hey, I, like that's not enough, like I, that's not enough space before we get to them. There's not enough mm-hmm. room to take off. And Max says there will be. And I actually really like this this plot beat, which is that Max makes the choice to not get in the plane with everyone else. He instead grabs a vehicle. I assume it's one that the pilot had. So we kind of blanked out on an entire character here. There's one of these kids who kind of keeps his distance and he's mute and he has a whole skull motif going on with him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, his name is uh, Screwloose, which, beautiful name there. Um, but he apparently, according to Wikipedia at least, has the ability to, like, mimic others. Like, he's very good at just picking things up very quickly through watching. And during the uh, fight scene, he managed to hop onto one of Tina Turner's trucks, knocks out the driver, and essentially steals the truck from him. Okay, and he okay. arrives here as the plane is reaching this cliff edge. And he's like, hey, guys, I have a truck. I mean, he's mute, so he just stands yeah. around but that's the gist of it he says hello actually his makeup is very reminiscent of some makeup that's in the next movie actually i was really noticing that because he's, oh, okay. he's got like black circles over his eyes kind of thing mm-hmm. and like sort of pale white on the rest of his face is is he a morton joe <laughs> is that him but no because you, you, you've got this whole hero of the wasteland thing where max makes the selfless act to 
ram this vehicle into the middle of these vehicles that are coming towards the plane to create a bit of extra runway, which gives mm-hmm. the plane just enough room to take off. So the end of this movie is the plane taking off and the p- pilot taking the kids, hopefully, to somewhere better, right? You get this hopeful idea, and Max has effectively sacrificed himself to stay behind to let mm-hmm. them do that. It feels like a purely heroic choice for Max, uh, and obviously they've got the master to help build whatever society they're going to build. So it's, it's quite a sweet act by Max, and I really like that. Yeah. Uh, and Tina basically is just like, oh, we're just going to leave you here. I'm not even going to bother killing you. This, you're, you're stuck in the desert. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that's the kind of thing that I think makes her so morally gray there. It's like, she could easily just be traditional villain and say, oh, Max, you've ruined all of my plans, and we're all going to die. I'm going to kill you for that. But instead, she's just like, it's not even worth it. Like, I was here to pick up the guy. The guy's gone. I have no issue with you. Goodbye. And just leaves him. Yep. Uh, and we actually get a very reminiscent shot of from the end of Road Warrior where the mm-hmm. camera pulls back from Max as he's standing there in the desert. It's very reminiscent yep. to that final shot of Road Warrior where he's standing in the road and the camera pulls back. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the final shot, though, because uh, we get a little bit of like an epilogue. It's uh, basically the, the, the girl, uh, Savannah, starts narrating from the future, which is very reminiscent, again, of the kid from 2 uh, narrating from the yep. future. But we find that the pilot eventually got them to a city. Now, the city, of course, is still a wasteland. It's still clearly, you know... It's uninha- Sydney. Yeah. yeah. But they get to the city and they, you know, they, they live there. They choose to live there and they've got, you know, obviously the engineer, or sorry, the uh, master has engineered their a system for so they have lights and stuff like that. And we see mm-hmm. that when she's telling this story, uh, time has passed and she now has a kid. And some of the other kids ha- are older as well. They're adults. Now they have kids. And she's telling this story just like she did in the middle of the movie where every day they tell the telling of what happened. But now it includes this part of how this this road warrior, this lone hero found them mm-hmm. and helped them get to where they are now. And that they keep the lights on every night in the city where they live in the hopes that him or someone else who needs a new home will see the lights in the distance and find them in the city. So it's got this hopeful thing. It feels, like again, like an evolution of how two ended with, again, mm-hmm. one of the kids growing up to be the future, and, like, hey, there was this mysterious hero that was only there for a brief bit of time, but kind of saved our lives and gave us a better yeah. future. It's it's this weird thing where all of these oral traditions, they are coming from people who Max not only helped save individually, but, like, helped develop their society, more yeah. or less. He w- like, they went off and they able to grow a entire civilization wherever they went. So I really like this idea that by the end of Max's story, obviously it's a never-ending tale, but by the end of his life, essentially this idea of Max is someone who essentially saved the world after the apocalypse. He's someone who brought all these people back from the brink and formed this new, not utopia, but like this new era of mankind forward. Yeah, it's there's a lot of heart in it, which, you know, mm-hmm. I, that's the one thing that I don't think feels like a betrayal of like the the tone shift to this movie it feels like this should have been here anyway um yeah. it's more you know it's more just how it does other things in the movie that feels like the, the the tone shifted to a more light-hearted affair but um yeah no i i i think i do actually kind of like the ending um so you know I, there's enough good stuff in here that it's 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 not like a disaster of a movie by any means. It, it's it's got a lot of interesting sequences and world building, some characters that kind of stick out and are memorable. It's got 
cool set design and costuming and all the stuff that you kind of expect from it um but yeah it's not as grimy it does feel like the tone is is a little bit more light-hearted and i think but for me the bigger issue is probably like i say it feels like such a drastic shift when you get to the middle section of the movie with the kids and then the lack of like super motivation to go back to the town it it doesn't feel like max isn't invested in anything until the very end which would be fine except it doesn't really feel like some of the others are invested in that much either it kind of it kind of feels like we get into the third act just because enough different people all make simple little decisions separately as opposed to mm. there's a real character with a driving force who really believes in something kind of thing yeah. um so i, I would have liked a bit more there but uh i don't think it was a bad time i'm not mad i'm not mad at it i, I don't think it's a bad movie i think it's, it's yeah. the weakest of the three probably uh yeah, I mean that's a, that's as far as I think of it as like it is still a well-made movie. I think uh, again there is some pacing issues in there, and the transition between first and second act was just non-existent. But I think that the quality of the movie is fine on its own. I think it's only when you compare it to thing like Road Warrior when you look back at that you feel this dip in like I don't want to. It's it's strange to say, like, the core audience of it, but, like, again, there's this idea as to what, you know, the Wasteland was and how brutal it was, and it feels like it was just significantly toned back. And I don't think that that's a betrayal or anything, but I do think that it, it it's the Ewok problem of, like, you have this world and then you're kind of just making it a bit more family-friendly, where that kind of goes against what the world was defined as, you know? I think an interesting comparison is less... Because Road Warrior is obviously the best one. I think an interesting Mm. comparison is this versus the original because I think this is more of a post-apocalyptic... I'll say that again. This is more of a post-apocalyptic movie and I think a lot of those elements in here do stand out as being, oh, I like a lot of this more than the first movie in a ways. Mm -hmm. But I think the first movie is more confidently directed and paced. Like It feels like a tighter film in a lot of ways. But they both have their issues. I think the first one is much more of like the indie film. It feels like someone yeah. had a vision, a story they really wanted to tell. This one feels like it has more of a budget and more star power behind it, but it feels like it is less tightly written. It feels like it is more of just Hollywood by the numbers sort but of thing. In a way, though, I would say this one feels a lot more like Mad Max, bizarrely. Oh, yeah, for sure. That first one, because that's the issue, is the first one had no wasteland. Yeah. It still was in towns and stuff. This one still at least has the setting right of what we expect from Mad Max. Yeah, which is not a problem for the first movie. It's only a hindsight thing, but right. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 there's this weird thing where this kind of feels more like what you'd expect a Mad Max movie to be like, albeit with the tone being such a shift from the first two. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's an interesting one. I think I can see why it turns some people off when yeah. you know if they were big fans of the first two which is you know i like i get it but like i i i think you know since this movie's came out in 1985 like our, our entire lives you know plus some extra basically yeah uh there's been so many worse examples of bad sequels or third or fourth movies or mm. or things that have completely just betrayed what something is I still think this has enough in it where I'm it's still a very interesting watch and entertaining watch. I like when I when I rewatch this franchise, I I won't skip this. This is still a perfectly solid watchable movie. Yeah, that's like it's one of those things where if there's a box set or some deal or something where it's selling 
the first three movies. I don't feel like this is one where people are getting this as a consolation. People are getting this no. just because it's part of the box. This is something where you get all three because it tells the full story and it is a interesting watch from beginning to end. For sure. And they do, I mean, all three movies are different in their own ways, which is also nice mm. in, in a sense. Like, the, mm. there's, there's, there's a charm to that and a quality to that that I think that I think does work. And even though we're talking about this like it's the last one, and in a way, it was. For a long time, it was the last yeah. one. Obviously, Fury Road came out so much later, and it was kind of this relaunch of the, the idea. And it worked with a new actor in the role, because like we've been saying, Max is kind of a folklore hero of the post-apocalyptic wasteland. That's kind mm-hmm. of what he has become. So you can, much like a James Bond, you could just keep doing it forever with a new actor every so often doing a few more movies. I mean, will yeah. we ever get another Tom Hardy Mad Max movie? I don't know. There was plans for one, but they chose to do Furiosa instead. So we'll see if we ever get, you know, Mad Max The Wasteland, I think is what it was meant to be called. Okay. We'll see if that happens. Or, but it, I mean, I'm not, like you said, I'm not opposed to, enough, like, I haven't seen Tom Hardy yet i have not done fury road but it is okay with it being a recurring character like james bond or completely changing out the role like james bond you can just make it either way and it'll work out from the context of what mad max is yeah it's uh it's interesting um so that being said i do hope that they still continue to like recycle roles where they can or recycle actors i should say because it just adds that extra little bit to it of these characters keep filling in the same kind of roles as the story progresses on and on. I think that's harder when there's big time jump jumps between yeah. like, the productions because you have actors getting much, much older or passing away. And, you mm-hmm. know, even, even if you do want to bring an actor back from, say, this one and a new one, it's like, okay, it's fine. You can bring them back. That's cool. But they can't really be the same type of character again because they have to be an old person now. <laughs> like, versus. I mean, you say that, but isn't that from the little i know about fury road isn't that a morton joe was like the villain from the first one yeah no true uh but it's a very yeah. different villain oh yeah no i'm sure very, very, that's very just that's villain. just that same sort of thing of you have like the devil character the villain character so i'm interested to see if they could continue with that even if they bring back um you know like Charlize theron as just another femme fatale kind of character I don't think they would do that. I think I think they they would expect that the the mainstream audience would just be kind of annoyed by that or confused by yeah, it. Maybe. So I, I, don't I think mean, we would. were confused by the gyrocopter, so that's yes. fair. Yeah, I I think they would probably steer away from that. I think you get away with the 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 villain because it had been so long, and he's also wearing a mask mm. and then yeah. Fury Road. So hear hear me out though. Mad Max multiverse. Oh God. <laughs> no, please no, please never. Uh, yeah so yeah i i think beyond thunderdome is a perfectly watchable fun movie uh mm-hmm. albeit not without its flaws and certainly the the act shifts are are, are pretty wild to like yeah. the the first one like you said is basically there's no transition almost it just kind of max is in a different location and a new a completely new character just wanders into frame and takes mm-hmm. him off to the second act and then the, the act two the act three transition is not even that much better to be honest it's a little yeah. better but it's not much better there's there's a point when you know the airplane guy comes in steals max's caravan and then he's forced to walk through the desert you could cut it right there right before he finds the whistle in the boots and then just cut to him being found by uh, Savannah, totally would work. Like, that is still a perfectly valid order of things that happen. 
So, all right, I guess we're we're ready to rate uh, Beyond yeah. Thunderdome. What are you giving it, David? I could beat around the bush, but I'm not. I'm just going to give it a 7.5. I think it is okay. better than the first movie. I think I enjoyed it more than the first movie. Um, not quite as tight, but more so of, like you said, what I think of Mad Max. It, it's in this sort of setting. Um, I, I personally, as much as I think that each of the acts kind of stands on its own not that it could stand on its own but like in the movie they do without any sort of lead in or anything i think that i still find the second act to be the most interesting in terms of like world building and lore stuff while it does feel weird that max is in the wasteland with a bunch of kids that's the like if they had just taken that center plot and expanded it to the whole movie i think there could have been something really Dude, cool there Joe's so funny about that statement is i kind of agree that it's interesting from a world building perspective but i think mm-hmm. from a watching the movie perspective it's the most badly paced part of the movie right yeah but that's what i'm saying if they just took that and made it its own thing then like fixed the pacing there i think that would have been the more interesting plot than barter town was for me at least yeah you need action, though, and I don't know what action you get if you just make a whole movie about Max running into a bunch of kids, you know? I mean, you make it Lord of the Flies. Eventually, one of the kids starts <laughs> killing people. It's all good. Uh, so I, I don't know where you go with that. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, is that I like mm-hmm. the ideas behind that middle section, but it does just feel like the pacing just completely grinds to a halt, and I'm just kind of waiting for, like, okay, when are we picking up with the actual main threat and why we're going to get back to the main threat. Like, these feel like questions that just were lingering in my head the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I was actually just checking what I gave uh, the first one because yes. I couldn't remember. And I think I gave it a 6.5 uh, for the record, uh, for mm-hmm. people who don't remember. And, you know, obviously to me, that's like just almost good, right? Just shy of it for whatever reason, and I'm sure I talked about that at the end of that review. I think, because I'm really questioning, do I want to say this is better than the first one? Because I think it's a really interesting debate as to whether mm-hmm. this is better than the first one, because they're both very, very different, and they have their own faults. I think, ultimately, I probably do lean towards this one. I think okay. I'm going to give this a 7. And just it's just a nudge up from that first one. I think the first one's a better made movie from a pure technical level, mm-hmm. like the car chases and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think this one's better from a character perspective, even though some of the side characters do feel like they just kind of pivot. But just something as simple as Master Blaster looks cool, Tina Turner's memorable, the the world building with the kids but most importantly max giving you know making that heroic choice at the end to save them feel oh yeah. in, in a lot of ways feels like the most heroic choice he's made in the entire franchise up until this point in some ways yeah yeah i get that so i'll go with a seven so i guess we're actually rating it slightly above uh the first one i think people who grew up in the 80s might have a problem with that and might think that that's a crazy thing to say that this is better than the first yeah, well, I mean, isn't that the whole debate with, like, a, the younger generation remembers Ewoks fondly because it's the kind of thing that they grew up with? Isn't I mean, that that kind of thing going on? I mean, I don't, but sure. Yeah, <laughs> generation as a whole, not the individual. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess. I, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I think, to me, the reason why this doesn't annoy me as much, I think, is because I've seen a lot of other sequels over the mm. years do much much weirder turns and much much worse 
sort of continuations than this is. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing I feel whenever anyone really talks about how much they hate uh, Robocop 3, for example, which is not a great movie. I'm never going to say it is. <laughs> but, like, I still find that quite watchable versus, like, I don't know, uh, like, Species 3, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is just garbage. From like start, yeah. at least Robocop has got some interesting ideas in it. Anyway, we've not done Robocop shit. That'll be coming at some point. No, I've only ever seen the first one, and that was like a decade ago, so I could use a refresher. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing those at some point. But uh, in fact, we might be starting those later this year. What? Peter. Spoilers. Look, we've got an 80s countdown planned. We have to do Robocop 1 before the 80s countdown, okay? It's just it's important. All right. All so, right. Anywho, uh... Yeah, I give it a 7, you give it a 7.5. So before David gets to his homework, I'll just, you know, tell you about all the bonus stuff you can get over at patreon.com slash TV. Uh, every month, patrons get access to the Criterion Cut, which is a review show me and David do, just like this one, but we do movies from the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the $5 and up tiers, you get access to Extra Reels, which is the opposite of that. Me and David review some of the worst things ever made, and it gets delirious and wacky and stuff it's 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 it's, it's, it's you know it's a it's La- kind of last time i nearly got caffeine poisoning so tune in for that <laughs> uh that, that that is true uh david decided to down repeated cans of coke throughout the mm-hmm. episode as a bit because it related to the movie and almost killed his insides as a result i will live and die for the bit don't ever question that so you can get that stuff over at Patreon. Obviously, there's also bonuses for Screams After Midnight, the horror movie podcast that I do with Tim. That's the third movie show on Male Fuzz Movies. So if you like this and Collector's Cut, we're trying that too. And if you don't know what Collector's Cut is, it's the show that me and David do in addition to this, where we go through franchises and we go through like seasons. You know, we, we just did a 70s disaster season, for example. And right now we're working through the Ghostbusters movies. So, mm-hmm. you know, fun people, to be had. All these shows, I see Pete more than I see my own family. I'm better than your family, so that's okay. Oh. I, I'm not sure if I told them about this show. I told them about Collector's Cut. So. <laughs> hey, David's family, if you're watching, I'm better than you. Oof. Especially, be <laughs> especially you, Auntie Ethel. Oh, come on. Don't bring Ethel into this. She has a bad hip. <laughs> that's nature's way of saying it's time for her to fall. Jesus down the stairs dark here at the end anyway did i have homework you did, did I talk about that so yeah, yeah it's david's homework he goes back and watches a sci-fi movie that we did on the show before he joined it so this was something from the first 215 episodes usually mm-hmm. a first time watch sometimes it'll be a refresher of an old thing that you've seen a long time ago but uh yeah. what was your homework movie this week david well pete i was watching this and i thought boy i really love that bit with like the the kids finding religion and I also really like that it's the third one in a franchise. I did Alien 3, which, to be fair, should not be a surprise because I did the other Alien movies with the other Mad Max films. I'm keeping that up. So um, just to be clear, I did not do the assembly cut. <gasps> I did the theatrical cut. And that was solely because I could not be asked to go find the assembly cut. Fair so. Enough. That being said, your original review with Tara was with the assembly cut, so I'm kind of doing like a different thing here. But um, it just felt mean 
<laughs> I think that's movie, the best yeah. way. It, yeah, it just like uh, going into it, it just immediately hits you in the face with like, you like the other alien movies? Screw you. And they yep. just continue that sort of feeling the whole it, way through. Here's a question, actually. Since you listened mm-hmm. to the, the review that we did talking about the other cut, yes. uh, what did you think? I mean, obviously, didn't see them, but just from hearing mm-hmm. what the additions or differences were, did, what, did, what did they sound like to you? I mean, it sounded like it was a more cohesive movie, but it didn't remove the problems that I ultimately had with it. Oh, it's still a mean, it, it's still a mean ass movie. Yeah. Yeah. That, it, that's it not was mean, and the, the other thing, and Tara specifically pointed this out was that they used a very, very early version of CGI for the alien here. Yes. And something about the coloring was just wrong the entire time. And it, I don't know why they didn't fix that in any sort of re-release because it's just not good. Because they shouldn't. It should stand as it was when it was released. You hear me, George Lucas? It should stand as it was when it was released. I agree, but I also think that like genuine errors are okay to fix. I think that that's one of the few things. As long as it isn't like oh, yeah. an error that the community but, loves. But that that's like a like yeah, but is bad CG an error? Like, it's, I get saying, oh, we can finally remove that wire that shows like how the actor has been held up. I can, I can mm. understand maybe fixing that. But when you're yeah. saying the CG looks bad, we should fix it. But I don't know. That's like changing the effect to a new effect. I agree. It's I this, think it's right. a slippery slope. I, that's all I'm saying. I don't, I don't want the CGI to be changed. Keep the same model. Keep the same motion. But like, change the tint so that it mm. at least with the scene that's all i'm asking okay i I can live with that i can live with that yeah um in terms of positives uh i actually i i think that it does an interesting idea of the first movie is its own like you know it's just a horror movie set in space whatnot the second movie deals with the ideas of motherhood and like birth and stuff this movie does a whole lot with the idea of religion and sacrifice and redemption and stuff like that and there's a really cool idea at the core of that but i think that by the time you hit the third act it kind of just falls apart under all of the stuff that came before it um there just wasn't enough to really keep it going for even the shortened runtime it was only like an hour and 30 something minutes and by the time we hit the third act i was like all right we've i'm sick of these chase scenes throughout this facility that i have no idea it feels like it's it's 10 square miles or something like that. It doesn't yeah, feel yeah. like I'm trapped with the monster. I could easily miss it at any given point. There's no sense of geography because all the hallways look the same. But I will mm-hmm. say visually the movie looks good because Fincher knows how to yep. make a good looking movie. One, one of my favorite mm-hmm. things that gets added in the, the longer cut, it's a, simple, it's a really quick thing, but you actually see them find Ripley outside and there's like a great shot of like a Charles Dance like running across the horizon carrying her, and there's all mm-hmm. these big oil rig looking things in the back. It's just it's really atmospheric, and I'm like, oh man, like give me another movie in this setting. <laughs> like I'll, I'll probably yeah. dig it. I'll probably enjoy it. But uh, it's it's an interesting movie. It's a flawed movie. I don't like. I usually get something out of watching it, even though it's clearly like a slap in the face after the yeah. previous one. So. Yeah, but uh, overall, since I was watching a different cut than you, my rating's probably not going to really matter all that much, but I will give it a 5.5. It's above the middle mark. It's okay, but there is just a lot that by the time the end of the movie hit, I was like, I'm glad that's done. I'm glad I don't have to continue that. I guess I gave it like a 6, if I was to guess. Yeah, you gave it a 6. Yeah, sounds right. Sounds right. Okay. Well, I look forward to uh, David's Alien Resurrection review at the end of Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) We, We can't. Because oh, no? that's coming out after 
alien day. Oh, so, so you'll, you'll have to fit that in somewhere else. Okay, fair I'm enough. I'm a surprise you. It's going to be somewhere else. Uh, the reason why I asked to fit that in somewhere else is because for alien day, we'll be doing Prometheus. And then mm-hmm. obviously, because there's a new alien movie coming out later this year, we'll also be doing Alien Covenant sometime in the summer. So look forward yep. to the rest of the alien franchise this year i loved it tara got to do the original four and then you have to come in and do the two prequels great that's just that's that's so good for you well well maybe the new one will be just as much a classic as the first two and i'll get I to hope, have that under my belt i hope so i i, yeah. I, I would like nothing more than that david absolutely <laughs> nothing more I want a good alien movie, goddammit. I want to see an alien movie in the theater and be happy I saw it. Like, I want that experience because I've never had that. dream. Yep. You know, I it, it's been nothing but misery. And same with Predator. I got a good Predator movie, but it wasn't in theaters. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Bastards. I'm sure... Yeah, just, just do that rent-out-a-theater thing. <laughs> just, like, take one seat, one showing, and just show it for yourself. Ah, uh, anywho, there you go. So that, that's your homework. Uh, another alien movie in the books. So, yeah, that's been the Atomic Cinema Experiment, everyone. We've been talking about Mad Max 3. Uh, let us know what you think of the movie in the comments. Always uh, helps us out. So if you hit the like button, that's good. And then go to Patreon, like we said. But that is the show. Thank you very much for joining us. And next week, I usually tell you that before we wrap up, so I'll, I'll do that too. Uh, next week oh if all goes to plan because we're recording this a little bit in advance but in theory next week should be Dune Part 2 oh boy can't wait to finally see how that wraps up I say that because uh, a lot of the new releases have recently been shuffled around so we could get to like the week before that and then they'll delay it by a month and screw up our our plans but I'm going to I'm going to assume Dune is not being released by Sony, and therefore I won't have to worry about that level of dickery, but we'll see. No. I want to say that's Warner Brothers. I could be wrong. I think so. Yeah. Sounds right. Because it's on Max. So, yeah, that'd be Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah. Max. Great. All right. That's the show, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Keep watching science fiction and computer at Salsa. Bye.